0: Welcome on into studio Two, everybody. I'm Avi Wolfman-Erett.
1: And I'm Cherry Gregg. Coming up today, we'll talk about third party and independent candidates in the upcoming presidential election, Avi. That's and a with, rich topic. It is. It is. And with a lot of people jumping into the race, are third party candidates good for our elections? We'll ask that question. Or are they just Spoilers.
0: A couple of folks who can help answer those Mm. questions are Franklin and Marshall political scientist Stephen Medvick and former New Jersey Republican Governor Christine Todd Whitman. You can weigh in on this topic Mm -hmm. as well. Give us a call. 888-477-9499 888-477-9499 or Studio 2 at WHYY.org. And in just a few minutes, Sherry, we're going to get the latest developments in the trial of former Philadelphia labor leader John Dougherty, a.k.a. Johnny Doc.
1: Yeah, lots going on there. Plus, Avi, you know we love some science here on Studio 2. We love two. science. We love science. Well, a 375 million year old fossil is now back in Philly and on display at the Academy of Natural Sciences. We're learning about the fish with limbs. Okay. I didn't know this. So, anyway, I'm really excited. But first, we're going to dig into the news a little bit with some turnout results. From last week's election, Avi, Mm -hmm. Tuesday's election reversed a pattern of declining voter turnout in an off year in Philadelphia, marking the best performance for Democrats in 20 years. It was like 31 percent turnout, which is eight percentage points higher than 2021. The Working Families Party, they shared some of this credit. You know, they were stumping for their two candidates, which made it into city council. Yeah, for city council, yeah. Um, But also that very expensive Supreme Court race likely brought a lot of folks Mm -hmm. out. It also increased voter turnout in Lancaster, Bucks, Chester, and Montgomery counties. But the downside about this, Avi, is that the the upswing in voter turnout was in wealthier white precincts and mostly black Hispanic wards of the city actually had a drop in turnout yeah so that's Compared that could be a problem yeah and that could be a yeah. problem in 2024
0: yeah and as you uh, mentioned downsides i'll also point out that philadelphia's share
1: mm-hmm. of the
0: overall oh, yeah, vote in the state mm-hmm. dropped relative to other counties there are a few potential reasons for that um one of which is that another big county allegheny county had a very competitive um executive race going on and an- another race as well that was uh, closely watched. And so Philadelphia, with its mayor's race not being as competitive, perhaps that changed Philadelphia's share overall in the state vote. Um, but those collar counties around yeah, around yeah. around Philadelphia, the turnout there just keeps growing and growing. The Democratic margins keep getting bigger and bigger. Philadelphia by comparison, is a smaller and smaller piece of the pie headed into 2024.
1: Yeah, and Philly had the lowest turnout overall of any Pennsylvania county. I mean, that's not the that's yeah. not good news. And the third lowest t- turnout in Democratic uh, turnout as far as Democrats statewide. So, I mean, there's a lot of work to do. We'll be looking ahead to 2024 and seeing what happens. And
0: there's a lot of potential explanations for that. And perhaps we'll dive into that another time. But in terms of elections, yeah. Cherry. They have consequences. They do. And we're already starting to see that in the Central Bucks School District. This is the third largest school district in the state of Pennsylvania. It's been in the news a lot, Cherry, in part because the Republican-controlled board there had proposed and passed some very controversial policies around book screening and also political displays in classrooms, yeah. including uh, pride flags. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a big backlash to that in the Latest election and a bunch of Democrats swept into the they school did. board, mm-hmm. and in advance of that, it does appear now that the superintendent Abe Lukaba will be leaving with a very large severance package on his way out. Lukaba was seen as an ally of the mm-hmm. Republican-controlled board, and probably not going to be an ally of the soon-to-be democratically-controlled board. So, this information, um, courtesy of Maddie Hanna over at the Inquirer, saying that they're going to vote tonight on a big severance package to say goodbye to the superintendent who had been part of this whole maelstrom. Interesting development in Central Bucks.
1: And you know, we were talking about this before the show. I mean, this severance package could be big. Yes, I mean, it's a lot he, of money. A lot of money, and I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands. The agreement includes $315,000 severance package. They had, he had gotten a huge raise.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Not long ago. Yeah, yeah. not
1: long ago. He could also get $300,000 for unused sick and vacation days. That's a lot of money. $50,000 $50,000 um, if there's any issues. And
0: you're reading through the whole contract. I mean, yes, there. There I go. mean,
1: you know I like to read the contracts, <laughs> the little lines. But there's he the could, lawyer in her. Yeah. He could go away. I mean, he could get some serious cash here, like yeah. more than half a million dollars, well over a half a million dollars. So we'll see what, what all, the vote turns out to the be. Case.
0: When people of prominence lose their position, yeah, they're losing power, but they're never losing money. <laughs> yeah, for
1: sure. And so um, I wonder... If he'll wear a tie <laughs> when, that, he, when he goes to this, that's a, that's stretch. a stretch. Oh, OK, you know we're bum, transitioning bum. now. So uh, <laughs> did you read the Fashion Advice column in The New York Times by Vanessa Friedman? Mm-hmm. Um, it, today's question caught my eye because someone asked, are men's neckties gone for good or will they make a comeback? Avi, your thoughts?
0: I hope they're gone for good. I hate neckties. Who's pro necktie? That's what I'm curious about. I always felt like it was just an obligation. It's an annoying piece of attire to put on. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't serve any function. It's purely for fashion reasons. I'm not a fashion person. So anytime you can simplify. I mean, I would wear a sweatsuit (laughs) if that was socially acceptable. I would wear a velour Sweatsuit. Oh,
1: velour. Oh, goodness. Like I'm learning so something. much about you. Yeah, something very comfortable. <laughs> I can see you in a velour sweatsuit. Um, well, Friedman explains that the tie is an everyday clothing item. Wait, are people like shopping no it's velour done. It's done. What,
0: why no velour sweatsuits? What's the problem with velour? They're, they're, that, am they're am little more, a little warm. They're great thing? for the winter. Okay.
1: Yeah, but <laughs> I used to have a purple one. <laughs> so, you know, you don't have to wear purple, but hey, you know, but uh, so Friedman says that. You know, wearing a tie every day is likely gone, yeah. you know. Great. Remember? Yeah. I mean, Fetterman didn't you, even want to wear a tie to the <laughs> Senate. To, we yeah. talked about that. He wanted the velour sweatshirt I adoption. do like tie. Yeah. You know, I like, I, I do like fashion. So you, do,
0: so you like a man, man wearing a tie? Occasionally. Yeah. Not
1: every day. I don't, I do think it, it is a hassle to tie it. There's always a stain on it. Yeah. Um and that can make you look kind of when you
0: ask me about fashion just simpler the better it's yeah. all artifice to me but
1: but it could they could have a comeback cuz you know what's old is always new so in sure a few it's... years some a Gen Z or might decide they want to <laughs> spruce it up and wear ties every day
0: we'll see one more story before we get to our newsmaker cherry uh this caught our eye in the Washington Post it was a little did you know mm. column about alcohol and cooking did you know that when you, quote unquote, cook off the alcohol in a recipe, you're really not cooking it all off. Anywhere from four to 85 percent of the alcohol may remain, depending on your guess, method yeah. and how long you are cooking that particular recipe for. So that's kind of why you taste it a little bit in there. But some of that alcohol content is in there. It's not probably gonna make you drunk unless you eat a lot of pot roast, mm-hmm. but you know <laughs> but it, it, it could, could be, But it yeah. could be triggering for someone who's mm-hmm. trying to avoid alcohol. So something to be aware of.
1: Yeah. And I I think you just got to let folks know, Mm -hmm. you know, because if you're diabetic or you have some medical conditions where alcohol is an issue, it could be triggering for folks who may be in recovery. You don't know.
0: Absolutely. But uh, so be conscious about how you're cooking with alcohol.
1: And don't. So I won't pour all the brandy on on the meat. Okay, All right. I won't do it. And so we're now going to transfer trans work. You know, we're going to work now into our (laughs) newsmaker. I lost my word there. (laughs) Uh, Former local 98 president. John, Johnny Doc Doherty is appearing before a federal jury for the second time in two years. This time, he's accused of embezzling hundreds of thousands of dollars from the union. Prosecutors allege that several union credit cards were used to pay personal expenses like for a washing machine, lavish dinners, groceries, and a whole lot more. There are also allegations that he secretly billed home improvement projects to the union. And this week, the contractor who covered up the charges testified, and Jeremy Roebuck, reporter covering federal courts for the Philadelphia Inquirer, was in the courtroom to hear it all. Jeremy, welcome to Studio 2.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: (laughs) Let's get everyone up
0: to speed, Jeremy. What are the allegations here? Um, And and what did Doherty do that is allegedly illegal? So in the
2: broad view, the U.S. Attorney's Office here indicted Doherty along with a number of other union officials and some some of his allies uh, back in 2019. uh, And they accused them all of embezzling around $600,000 in union money. And so that's money that is paid out of member dues, from the hardworking members of the union that uh, are, are contributing to the the big pot,
0: and it's all supposed to be used for union expenses.
2: Yes, yes. And so what what the allegation is is that these people and, and Doherty leading them, mm. you know, were spending this money on all sorts of things, from as you mentioned, lavish dinners, some birthday parties in Atlantic City, to the most mundane things you can imagine that everybody does, like go shopping at Target. There yeah, was like yeah. a washing machine, yeah, or, I or yes, that. a yeah. washing machine, diapers. And, <laughs> <laughs> Tens of thousands of dollars in yeah. expenses at stores like Target on, like, diapers, breakfast cereal, granola bars, things things that – just routine, mundane things. Which
0: makes you think that they were doing it routinely. Sure.
2: Yeah. I, I think at one point they said there were 436 different charges on Doherty's personal union-issued credit cards over a period of, like, six years. Wow.
1: And so let's talk about the most recent testimony um, from the contractor who covered up some of these other expenses related to contract work, Anthony Massa, owner, owner of Philadelphia-based Massa Construction. Who is he and what did he say on the stand? So Massa
2: was initially charged alongside all of these people uh, back in 2019 with conspiring to defraud the, the union. And he, he is a general contractor and he features into the allegations in that Prosecutors say that he performed a bunch of renovation repair work on homes of either Doherty, several members of his family, and some other union officials that that were charged. Now, Massa is interesting in that he is the only person who Mm. has pleaded guilty and agreed to testify against the others. Everyone else that pleaded guilty, they said, I don't want to testify. I'm keeping my mouth shut. Um... And so it's it's a contentious environment in the courtroom right now because uh you have this guy that was one of them mm-hmm. now turning against them and uh spilling all of their secrets I guess if if you're to believe him.
0: And what is the uh, opinion of the folks who don't believe him? What's been the response from Doherty's lawyers? So the defense
2: uh came out swinging against Anthony Massa in particular in their opening statements last week, calling him a fraudster, a liar, trying to paint him as someone who is just trying to cut a better deal for himself uh, when it comes time for him to be sentenced in this case by making up things. And, uh, you know, Massa's—the main thrust of Massa's testimony is that uh, he was instructed by Local 98's former president, who is Doherty's co-defendant currently on trial with him, Brian Burroughs, to— he was the one that told Massa to bill all of this stuff to the to Uh, the union the intermediary (laughs) exactly exactly so Burroughs lawyers in particular have been like you can't believe anything this guy is saying our client never said any of this he just did it on his own
1: Mm. and let's talk about the evidence besides this this testimony from Anthony Massa what else is there
2: uh So broadly, we've spent the last half of, uh, or the first last week, uh, was spent a lot on those credit card charges you mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier. Going over receipts, 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 receipts. receipts, Yeah, yeah, they had plenty of receipts. Uh, And in that case, there's four different union credit cards that were issued in John Doherty's name that they that they've been discussing. He held on to some of them. There were also some that he gave out to other, you know, lower ranking union members that kind of worked as his personal assistants to go make expenses. uh, You know, when he was busy. Uh Doherty's lawyers have claimed that, you know, he didn't know what these people were doing mm. with the credit card, so he can't be blamed for um you know any anything that was wrong up on them during that time. But at the same time, you know, the prosecutors keep hitting, well, you signed the expense report saying that this purchase was for this business reason when really it just was delivered to your house or delivered to your sister's house or it's something like John that. It's your John Hancock right there. Exactly. On a piece of paper. exactly.
0: Um Is there any big piece of evidence or testimony perhaps lingering out there that we think might be brought up soon? Is there something you're looking for? Well, it's interesting. I mean, prosecutors have signaled and, you know, sometimes this changes
2: mid trial, but have signaled that they want to bring in some of Doherty's family members that receive some of these benefits, such uh. as, you know, repair work on their houses to come in and, and testify. And that, that'll be interesting because obviously their sympathies are still going to lie with with Johnny Dock here. But, uh, you know, they can be compelled to come testify by the government. And so it'll be interesting to see kind of their posture if they do get mm. called to the witness stand to testify presumably against their, their will
1: in this case. And so this is the second trial mm-hmm. in two years. Um, how does this one compare to the first? And then, I mean, what could happen with Johnny Doc if he is found guilty here?
2: Well, it's interesting. The first trial, uh, you know, dougherty's defense was built. Well, the first trial was a bribery trial involving allegations that he bribed city councilman Bobby Heenan. And in that first trial, both of them both came in saying, you know, whatever we're accused of doing, our number one goal was to just fight for union members. And, mm. you know, that was a good thing and we were doing good here. So, like, how can you hold that against us? And so it's interesting to see his defense in that case juxtaposed against what's alleged in this trial where he's accused of basically stealing from the union members that he was saying yeah. I'm out here trying to fight for every day. Uh, so that's been an interesting uh, juxtaposition to kind of see play out in court in terms of your question about what happens to him. You know, he was convicted in that first bribery trial, and Bobby Heenan, the former councilman, has already been sentenced to prison. He was sentenced to three and a half years earlier this year. I think it's, you know, unquestionable that Dougherty, unless his case gets overturned on appeal, is going to be doing some prison time in, in relation to that conviction. If he gets convicted in this case, too, that will presumably only add to the potential prison time he's he's facing. So, And he's still got one more trial cooking scheduled for next next year on another set of charges the
0: wheel keeps on turning turning. uh thank you so much for getting us up to speed jeremy that's jeremy roebuck uh reporter at the Inquirer covering the johnny doherty trial and uh, we'll be hearing a lot more about this pretty darn soon sherry i would imagine
1: sure coming up outsider candidates spoilers or good for democracy chime in we want to hear your thoughts you can call us 888-477-9499 or email studio2 at whyy.org
3: hi it's terry gross the host of fresh air we bring you in-depth long-form interviews with actors directors musicians authors journalists and more Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
1: This is Studio 2. And I am Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi wolfman
0: Arendt Last week's election results, Cherry... Good news for Democrats.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: However, the polls have shown that when it comes to the 2024 election, neither President Biden nor former President Trump are particularly popular with the American public. That sentiment may be driving interest in third parties and independent
1: candidates, making more people jump into the race. Several are now in or contemplating jumping in. Robert F. Kennedy and Cornell West, they're running as independent candidates. Jill Stein says she'll seek the Green Party nomination. And other names are being floated alongside the no-labels party, like West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. But are third parties and independent candidates good for our democracy? And are they viable enough to be more than just spoilers? Joining us now is former Republican Governor of New Jersey, Christine Todd Whitman, who co-chairs the Forward Party which she started with Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang. Welcome to Studio Two.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you, Jerry.
1: Also with us is Stephen Medvik, director of the Center for Politics and Public Affairs at Franklin and Marshall College. Welcome to you too, Professor.
4: It's good to be with you.
0: And we want to know what all of you think. Are you excited about all the potential candidates or are you worried about it? You can hear a phone in the background because that's <laughs> we're asking for your phone <laughs> yes. calls. 888-477-9499. Do you think we need more than just a two-party system? You can also email studio2 at org. Stephen, I want to bring you in first and do a little history because the Republicans and Democrats were not always the top two unimpeachable dominators of American politics. Um, so historically, what are the conditions under which new parties tend to emerge?
4: Well, it's a great question, and we, the truth is we haven't really had new parties emerge for quite a while. Um, the, the last time we had a, a, a party that, that you know, won elections— at the national level that weren't the Democrats or the Republicans was the middle of the 19th century when the Whigs uh, were a, a competitive party. But the truth is, even even the Whigs at that point were not well established. They sort of were created after the era of good feeling when we really only had one party uh, nationally. Uh, and they never really got uh, roots set deeply. Um, and so for a couple of decades there in the middle of the 19th century, they were competitive, but they, they pretty... Just as quickly as they emerged they 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 fell apart, and it was over the issue of slavery and that split the northern Whigs from the southern Whigs uh, and and gave us the Republican party and we've had that same party system in place ever since and
1: are there follow up questions you Stephen? are there any like mm-hmm. conditions that you see are that are analogous to where um, you know you saw this split and you saw the turmoil there between the parties um, are there analogies to what we're dealing with right now?
4: I'm not sure there are. I mean, I think people you know, people are saying that they're discontented with the with the party system today, and there's lots of reasons to be unhappy with the way the system's working today. Uh, people are also unhappy with uh, what seem to be the nominees for the two major parties. And so people are saying, well, that seems to be fertile ground then for third parties. But if you're really going to have a third party establish uh, itself, I think one of the two major parties is going to have to unraveled. It'll have to implode like the Whigs did. And while the parties are are, are quite weak at the, at the moment, I don't see either one of the parties uh, disappearing or, or or imploding like that. So there's interest in third-party candidates, and there is a lot of interest in having a third party. The problem, and we can get into this more, I'm sure we will, is that most of the I mean, the real reason we have a two-party system is is structural. It's really the electoral system we have in place. So in order to get a third party, we really would probably have to change the electoral system.
0: And I'm going to bring in an email now from Elizabeth who agrees with you completely, Stephen. Without the removal of the Electoral College, third-party candidates can only be spoilers. It's unfortunate. We should have more choice, and ending the Electoral College would allow a much wider spectrum of candidates. Let's hold that thought for a second because I want to bring you in, uh, Governor Whitman. What opportunity do you see now that, you know, inspired you to get on this effort with the forward party? What's the opportunity? What's the lane?
3: Well, the lane is right now the two major parties control things to the degree that you get candidates who will, who can't think for themselves, who cannot and don't dare state what they really feel they are told by their parties what issues they have to take up what they can say about them and if they don't do that they find themselves being primaried by their very leadership going after them they are denied access to fundraisers there there are a whole lot of punishments that go along with standing up to the parties which means that we end up not being represented we the people and so what forward's doing is we're starting at the grassroots we're not involved with the presidential but what we're hoping but we are involved in the presidential to the extent that if you get candidates who agree with the principles of our party which are respect the rule of law uphold the constitution work with anyone to solve problems and work to open the whole electoral process uh, whether that be ranked choice voting, open primaries, that sort of thing. So people, no matter where they live, if you're a Democrat in a very Republican district or vice versa, your vote will matter if you can make those changes. And what we're doing is you get those kinds of candidates on the ballot, you can really establish a reverse coattail effect. You'll bring more people out in 2024, for instance, who like these these kinds of changes, who like the idea of a candidate who will speak to what the, their constituents want to hear and want done, not what a party tells them to do. And while who might not have come out otherwise, who said I don't like I don't like either of those choices at the top. You know that the, they don't excite me. I don't like them. I don't want to vote yes. this time. They'll say, "Gee, I, there's somebody running for a school board. There's somebody running for mayor. There's somebody running for the town council. I know those people. I like those people. I, I'm going to vote for them. And when they're there." They'll stay looking for yeah. candidates like that up the ballot. And and quick question
1: follow up for you, Governor. I mean, some of the criticism of the your party is that there's no specific platform or issues that the party takes a position on. Um, right. Can you respond to that criticism? I mean, when sure. we talk, when I'm talking about issues, you know, parties tend to take you know stances on abortion. They tend to take right. stances on taxes, for example. Um, but The forward party doesn't really do that per se can you explain the philosophy behind that
3: well because what's important in one state is not what's important in another and it should be up to the state parties to decide what are the issues of major importance to them that they want to tackle and it should be up to the candidates to decide where they are on those on the particular issues so that the public really gets to know who their candidates are and what they can expect of them And they sign a pledge if they become a Ford Party candidate, they sign a pledge that talks about what our principles are with the understanding that then it's going to be up to them to decide where they are on issues. You know, I used to get asked all the time, are you liberal, conservative, what are you? And I'd say, tell me the issue. I'll tell you where I stand. And then you decide, because I'm not going to be in the same place in every issue. That's kind of mindless if you say, well, I'm always going to be to the far right or always going to be to the far left you have to consider the issues on their merits. And that's what we want to create that space for candidates to be able to do that. It's a space they don't have and a freedom they don't have today. Hmm.
0: I want to bring in a caller now. This is Taylor from Maryland, who I believe supports the idea of a third party. Taylor, you are on studio too. Thanks for joining us from our home state of Maryland. Taylor, Uh, what's your question (laughs) or comment? I'm
2: agreeing with the point that was just made that I think in having a two-party system, we turn issues to being dichotomous, and there are not. I am a lifelong Democrat, and right now the person that I am most agreeing with about reproductive rights is Nikki Haley that's saying, like, hey, there are multiple – there's a spectrum here. We have Mm -hmm. multiple things. There's different goals we have. And by having a two-party system, you don't have that option to hear those in-between ideas.
0: Interesting. Thank you so much for that comment, Taylor. And I want to direct that now to Stephen Medvick uh, from Mm -hmm. Franklin and Marshall. So, Stephen, what is the system that you could design if you were starting from scratch, a democratic system that would capture the imagination and attention and position of voters like Taylor who are looking for that nuance?
4: So you'd want to design a system that allowed multiple parties to win seats in a legislature, in a Congress, in a Parliament. And so you'd probably design a system that had multi-member districts instead of a single member district like we have now. You know, when, when a single winner is going to win in every single district, um, there's a kind of a natural tendency to to whittle it down to just two parties. So if you had multiple uh, multi-member districts Uh, let's say a statewide you know uh, a district in pennsylvania for example and you were electing all the members um um, from that one district you could then divide the seats that the parties win proportionally it's called proportional representation and so you know if 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 we want a multiple multi-party system we'll probably have to change the the single member plurality electoral system we have now for congress and for legislatures We would have to change that to a proportional representation system we'd also then have to think about the presidency because when you have a when you have a single winner in an executive branch uh office that also has a tendency to whittle the choice down to two um and so and and in our system with the electoral college sort of exacerbates the issue because you have winner take all in every single state or most of the states all but two Um, And so you so lots of systems that are really, truly proportional don't have a presidency. They have a parliamentary system where there's a prime minister. So you might think about that. And I'll add one other thing that doesn't seem to be connected, but the size of the legislature also seems to matter. Mm -hmm. So when you have more representatives, the districts are smaller. They're a bit more homogenous and you can get third party candidates winning. In places where now they can't, because in bigger districts, uh, again, it it sort of ends up uh, defaulting back to one of the two major parties. So imagine a district in a small district in San Francisco or Cambridge, Massachusetts. Now you you might elect a Green Party candidate if it's small enough, Um, and so that would be an argument for expanding the size of our Congress um, because it is small, uh, comparatively speaking.
1: Yeah. If you are just tuning in, we're talking about third parties third-party candidates. Is it a spoiler or is it necessary for our democracy? We're speaking with Steven Medvic, professor of government and director of the Center for Politics and Public Affairs at Franklin and & Marshall and former New Jersey Republican Governor Christine Todd Whitman, who formed with Andrew Yang, the moderate forward party. So clearly, um, Governor, I mean we just heard, you know if we, ha- if we had the option of creating a new system, a lot would have to change. But we're dealing with the two party system that we're in right now. So I want you to, to talk about real world um, opportunities here, because a lot of folks sure. just believe it's just going to upset the, the apple cart, so to speak, and cause more problems by having these third party candidates in here. I mean, could you talk about dealing with our system as is? And I know there needs to be changes, but how do we deal it? Deal with it as it is and make sure that you know, that democracy prevails
3: here? Well, okay, first of all, there are over 500,000 elective positions across the country, and in any given year, 70% of those are uncontested, meaning the voters don't have a choice. There's one candidate for that office. And of that 70%, 5 to 10% of those offices are never filled. That's just wrong. Mm. We believe that every voter should have a choice and every office should be filled. So that's where we concentrate our efforts, we being the forward party is you can't be a spoiler if there's nobody else in the race Mm -hmm. so by definition you're you're not a spoiler and the changes that you can make that will start the process i believe to really open it up are things like open primaries ranked choice voting where anyone can come in and say you're you have and it's up to the state whether they do top two top three top five choices, but you go in and, and you could vote for three people for mayor. Say the first one's my I really like this person, but you know, this person isn't so bad. I could I I like them. And then what happens is it basically you do away with primaries because it's a it's an instant runoff system. If nobody gets to fifty point one percent of the vote, you knock the bottom person off and you take their their number two votes, the people who voted for them but whatever candidate they voted for number two and they you allocate that up the ballot and you keep going till you get a candidate who actually got 50.1 percent of the of the vote, which would be unusual these days in this country, since we seem to elect people within the thirties percent of, of public support. And you don't the, the beauty is you don't have to have everybody. I mean, we know from looking, for instance, you mentioned Joe Manchin at the top of the show, um, one person in the last congress and look at the difference he made. So if you yeah. can get that nucleus of candidates elected who are willing to work to the kind of changes that open the process mm. so that everybody's vote can be heard, can will count, then you start to then you can really really see some changes come.
0: Interesting. I want to bring in an email here mm. from Belinda who is the chair by the way of the Green Party of Philadelphia who says the spoiler argument is a means for the mainstream parties to blame electoral defeats on others, but it is problematic and flat-out wrong. For example, Greens did not cause Democrats to lose in 2016. Clinton won the popular vote, and there was no electoral college votes for the Green Party. So there is a perspective from someone outside of the two-party system. I want to bring it now back to Stephen Medvick, Franklin and Marshall College. So you heard Governor Whitman talk about this idea of filling some of these lower rung Mm -hmm. offices and building up from there. Strategically speaking, do you think a third party stands a better chance by, you know, building from the bottom of the pyramid that way or by running a very charismatic, you know, presidential candidate who maybe gets, you know, 20, 25 percent of the vote or something like that and then building off that momentum from there? You know, given the system we have now, is it better to go top down or bottom up?
4: I think I think parties, third parties, think that starting at the presidential level is best because it's so high profile. You know, people will see your candidate, they'll hear from that candidate, they'll know you're on the ballot, and they think that's going to help their their ultimate cause. But I really have to commend the forward party for taking the strategy that it's taking because politics is hard work it's organization uh, it takes lots of people it takes lots of people out on the uh, you know on the ground trying to to talk to voters and convince voters and i think starting in these races that are unopposed makes a lot of sense because sometimes you might who knows you might win some of those races mm-hmm. but even if you don't being on the ballot consistently will start to normalize the fact that there are other parties out there and that People, lots of people, even in a district that's overwhelmingly Democratic or Republican and normally unopposed for that reason, there'll be a lot of people who will vote for an alternative. And so if you start to build from the ground up, I think that's a stronger foundation than if you try to do the flashy, you know, pay attention to our presidential candidate um, who, let's face it, is is really unlikely uh, to do anything other than potentially spoil the outcome.
1: Yeah, and speaking of spoilers, let's talk about a couple of the the candidates that are running. Um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., right here in Philadelphia last month, announced he'd run as an independent in 2024's presidential election. Take a listen to what he had to say.
5: The Democrats are frightened that I'm going to spoil the election for President Biden, and the Republicans are frightened that I'm going to spoil it for President Trump. The truth is, they're both right.
1: And and so... um, you know I, I would love to hear from you, Governor. I mean, we also have Jill Stein just released in the race. I mean Dr. Cornell West is in the race. I mean, when you hear these these candidates would do they could they possibly be spoilers though because your your party, the forward party is taking the bottom up approach they're taking the top down um, Your comment and reaction to that
3: Well, the polls seem to go back and forth with whether you're a spoiler and for which can which kept particular other Main party presidential candidate, you would be a spoiler for, but uh, third parties have not had a great deal of success at the federal level, um, as was pointed out by the professor. It just it just hasn't been a road to the White House that has been successful, and the problem is that once the election's over, that's it. That that party doesn't exist anymore because they only were focused on the presidential itself. And that's where you run into problems and people are left stranded saying, "Okay, now what do I do? Who am I? Am I a Republican? I'm Democrat, independent. And frankly, the the largest party in the country today is the independent party because so many people have left both the Republicans and the Democrats because of what they perceive as the extremism in coming at both parties. And so they're just moving away from them in general. It's good to have more people get people involved in the process. You have to like that idea that people can see, that others can run, but um, for when you're doing it from the presidential, just on the presidential line, it it gets more problematic.
0: Governor Whitman, I want to ask you, uh, perhaps playing a little devil's advocate here. Someone might step back and say, yes, there are problems with the two-party system. However, it has helped sustain a democracy for almost 250 years, And not a lot of other countries on Mm -hmm. earth have done that. And some might argue no one's really done that. So Mm -hmm. perhaps there is some stability and purpose of the two-party system. How would you respond?
3: Well, our founding fathers warned us about it. They were, none of them liked parties. They were very worried about a two-party system, particularly because they saw what we, I think, are seeing, what I know we're seeing now, is that politics and keeping Your power becomes more important than policy. I mean, when I ran, when I had run and was reelected in 1997, I was asked to run for the Senate, wasn't particularly interested, but said, yeah, I'll go down and talk to the Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee. That was in 1997. I was told in no uncertain terms, if I said one word about campaign finance reform, I wouldn't get a penny of support out of them. Hmm. And that was nineteen ninety seven. That's how strong the parties are in determining what candidates and what office holders can and can't say. And that's not healthy. We have enormous issues. It was twenty it was either two thousand one, the end of it, or the beginning of two thousand two, I can't remember, when the Bush administration, George W, sent a bill up to the Hill on immigration. It was a I thought it was a very balanced, very good bill, but you know, you go up, you send it up to the legislative branch and they do what they're going to do with it. They they change it and oftentimes make things better. They wouldn't even hold a hearing on it because they like the issue. It's a way to excite their base, to get people all frantic. The same thing's happening with climate change, with all these uh, abortion, these issues for which we can find solutions. They're not going to satisfy anybody, everybody, but we can get to a point where we can start making progress on these issues. But our parties. Use these as ways to make money, to to get vol- to get uh, donors to come in, and to uh, ensure that they have an excited base that will get out and vote. And so, as we wrap up, we have about thirty
1: seconds for you, Professor. What's your prescription for the future? I mean because the governor has a point. There, There is a problem, and, and you are also talked about there is a problem with the current two-party system, so in 30 seconds or less, 25 <laughs> down, because I had a long question, uh, your prescription. All right, seconds.
4: Professor, you're on the clock. <laughs> Well, always say we would like a th- you know, I think we should have a third party or multiple parties. Um, and, and I understand that they're sincere in that, but they have to understand that it's a structural issue. You know, it's the way the institutions are designed. It's the way the laws are designed. So if you really mm, want change, yeah. you have to advocate for a change in the system.
0: It's all about structures, folks. It really is. Thank you so much, uh, Stephen Medvick, Director of the Center for Politics and Public Affairs at Franklin and Marshall. We also were joined by former New Jersey Governor Christine Todd Whitman. Thank you to you both.
5: i tell you why I can't find
2: you. Every time I go out to your place, you've gone fishing. How
5: oh, you know. What is a sign This is a Studio 2, ah. I'm gone Cherry Greg.
0: Fishing. We didn't know what was going to play. We did not know. <laughs> just enjoying it. I'm Avi Wolfman-Erin. is a, a new exhibit at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University called Life on Land, the Devonian. And on display is a very famous fossil from 375 million years ago. It's called Tiktaalik. It's a long fish-like creature with a flat snout like a crocodile, flippers that look a little bit like arms, and it might not look like all that much to the casual observer, but this fossil helps explain a big question in evolution. How did sea animals make it onto land?
1: TikTok was discovered in 2004 on Ellesmere Island in Arctic Canada by a team co led by Academy paleontologist Ted Dashler. The fossil has now returned to Philadelphia for the first time in many years to star in the new exhibit. And we have Ted with us in our studio to talk about what we've learned from TikTok and this ancient period on Earth. Welcome to Studio Two.
5: Thank you, Cherry. Thank you, Abby.
1: And so I'm so excited to have you here. I want you to first, because when you discovered this ancient fossil, I want you to take us back to that day, because you spent three summers in the Arctic before making this discovery. What was it like, and when did you know, oh my gosh, we've made this monumental find?
5: Sure. Well, thanks for asking. It's um. We do a lot of homework before we go to a faraway place like the Canadian Arctic, and we basically set our sights on an area where the rock formation was the right age and deposited under the right environments, meaning an ancient stream system. So we just walk around. We set ourselves up in a camp, then we spend about a month there at a time, and we walk and we find bits and pieces of fossils. But when we find a spot where they are more complete pieces – we dig in, and that's what happened at the site where Tiktaalik came from. We dug in, and we started to see some very interesting pieces—whole um, skull, parts of a skull—brought them back here to Philadelphia before all the details were all the details were revealed. And back in our lab at the Academy, we did that long process of preparation, where all the kind of interesting anatomy that showed this animal as being somewhat fish-like, but somewhat like the earliest limbed animals, sort of came to light. And it was terribly exciting to see, and and then the long process of research and so forth since then.
0: So it's not like one moment, Dr. Deschler. It's mm-hmm. sort of like a continuum of moments as the sort of the, the excitement is, is building, kind of. Like, I'm trying to imagine what it's like to be living in that moment of maybe stumbling upon something revolutionary.
5: You're exactly right. It's not one moment. Um there's definitely moments though a few moments where you're saying i think this is really interesting but of course you got to do your homework you got to do some comparisons to things that are already don't get known out of yourself. and all that yeah. exactly <laughs> don't get too excited don't <laughs> post it yet you know all this kind of stuff and of course then creating scientific publications is a long deliberate process and reviewed by peers etc um that's how the process works and uh we're so excited ticktolic was Really, probably the most important thing I've found among many Devonian fossils in my lifetime uh, it's the one that has really been the textbook example now of this evolutionary change, so been really important for us
1: let 's talk about the Devonian period because mm-hmm. honestly, I'd never heard of this period. Most people talk about dinosaurs. You think that that's where evolution kind of you know we we rarely talk about the time before that. so take us back to the to that Devonian period. What was going on? Um, then to where this 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 Tiktaalik was able to rise out of the water?
5: Sure. Great question. Indeed, the Devonian goes um, hundreds of millions of years before the Mesozoic era, which is when dinosaurs lived, and um, there were no limbed animals on Earth, nothing with arms and legs walking around on land during the Devonian period. In fact, if you were in orbit looking down at the Earth at the beginning of the Devonian you'd see land but it would be brown and gray and maybe ice caps and you'd see blue oceans. By the end of the Devonian you had the oceans, you had the land but on land was green. And that was the that was the greening of the earth and that's probably the most important event during the Devonian period was plants making the transition to land and evolving tree-like structures, so the first forests. And mm. when there's Plants capturing sunlight, making detritus, you know, decaying material. Then there's going to be invertebrates, scorpions, millipedes, that kind of thing, starting to feed on land. And when all that is happening, there will eventually be vertebrates that are then following sort of into the shallow waters, new ecosystems of swamps, sort of making new ecological niches there. And this all took about 50 million years, (laughs) but it was a very consequential period in the history of life on Earth. And that's the story we're trying to tell at this exhibit at the Academy.
0: Yeah, in some ways it's complicated, but it's also simple, right? Mm, There was food to be had, Mm -hmm. and there was an evolutionary advantage to getting on out of that water and chowing down on that food. And by the way, not being chased by as many things as we're chasing you— in the water as well, fewer predators.
5: Really good point. You know, nature takes advantage of new ecological opportunities by adaptations to to fill those niches, and that's exactly what happened uh, in the Devonian. And then, since the Devonian, these limbed animals, you know, once that invention kind of happened, oh, all of a sudden we've got the diversity of amphibians and then reptiles and the lineage leading to mammals and. All that time, it was animals adapting to different ecological niches on land. Some of them even returning to the sea. Uh, but so that explosion of the diversity of life, of which we are part of, really started back there in that Devonian time frame. It's amazing to think of. That is yeah. so
1: fascinating. So um, I got to ask you, because Scott Cooper, the president and CEO of the Academy. Of natural sci- science, called you the their personal Indiana Jones. <laughs> Do you like that? Label, I by love the way. that. I thought that was really cool. And they said you, they that you put the academy on the on the map um, oh. as far as paleontology. Um, what has this ride been for you? And when you look back, sort of your, like your legacy, because yeah. this is, you were on the Colbert nice. Report. I'm like, I, I did you do know. some of that, yeah.
5: <laughs> well, first of all, the Academy has a long history, some very important paleontologists. So I, I did not put it on the map, but maybe in the last 30 years or so, I've brought its profile up again uh, quite a bit. And as far as Indiana Jones, I, I work with a lot, uh, I work with Neil Shubin at the University of Chicago a lot. And we go to these really out-of-the-way places, the Canadian Arctic, even Antarctica, and we have this sort of mantra, which is if it were easy, somebody else would have already done it. <laughs> and so, you know, people need to explore all over the Earth, wherever there's Devonian rock, hey, we're happy to go there. And if it does involve helicopters and hardships <laughs> and rainy weather and windstorms and all the rest, that's fine because we're finding good fossils. So... uh so, yeah, it's, it's not a problem to, to <laughs> as long as there's discoveries to be made, I'm happy to be there.
1: That's awesome.
0: Uh, maybe we'll embarrass you a little bit. We want to play a clip from your appearance on the Colbert oh, Report. Um, <laughs> here, here is you, many years ago, talking to Stephen Colbert.
5: So it goes fish, monkey, man. Uh, with a few in-between stages, indeed. hmm You've got to believe it. evolution is a fact of life. But then why do I have to believe it? <laughs> <laughs>
2: But so you're saying that all land animals were once sea animals? Yes. So, so when I go to a restaurant and order the surf and turf, I'm ordering the surf and surf, ultimately. Yeah,
5: if an animal like this enough. with limbs and the beginnings of limbs is surf and turf all at one. Really? Absolutely. I, don't, I, I can't tell you what it tasted like, though. and
1: you were great on the show by the way you you, you (laughs) gave as
4: good as you got and
0: uh so uh you this is obviously satire, but when you discover something like this or you're part of it you become part of the cultural conversation Mm -hmm. maybe even the culture wars because there are plenty of uh, creationists still Mm -hmm. who would dispute your findings Mm -hmm. um without evidence but still how did you handle the spotlight, and I would imagine some of the blowback that came with this.
5: Uh, you know, the, the blowback was minimal uh, as far as I'm concerned. I'm I, not a big social media person or anything like <laughs> that, that so helps, I didn't yeah. watch all that happening. Uh, um, you know, we we create our science. We do our science. We, we're really pleased when um, our discoveries are incorporated into mainstream you know textbooks and all these sorts of things to help tell the story of the history of life um really enjoyed the 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 political cartoons using TikTok, you know coming out of the water kind of a it's it's a frontier um um so it's used a lot as a um, as a sort of a metaphor for change and that sort of thing so really enjoyed that the memes about TikTalic, like <laughs> damn TikTok! now I have to pay taxes all that kind of thing um, has been really a fun part of it I didn't know there were TikTok memes i have to look into there are. that now.
1: I know and what a great I mean we have to check out Life on to Land, that new exhibit at the Academy of Natural Science, your final exhibit there. Please
5: do. You're as, right. <laughs> as we
1: wrap up, just, you know, if you wanted the one thing, we got to see when we're there.
5: You got to see Tiktaalik Rosé. <laughs> it's, it, it's a chance. It lives in camp back in a research collection in Canada now, and it's only here for about nine months. So come on down. Come on All down. Right. That is
0: Ted Deschler, a retired paleontologist at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University Thank you so much for sharing uh, your wealth of experience with us and our listeners.
5: Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure.
1: Well, that wraps our show. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. T- Tina Calakay is our engineer for today. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi wolfman Aaron, Thank you much, so much for joining us.
0: Uh, hominids, we had a great time today.
1: <laughs> we did. <laughs>